Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to Episode 77 of Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where, with my good friend and colleague Matt Kelly of Radical Compliance, we take a deep dive, literally going into the weeds, to flesh out a compliance or compliance-related topic each week. Today, we took a look at the recent ethical imbroglio suffered by EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt. We explore it from the compliance perspective, from the leadership perspective, and the corporate governance perspective. There's lots of lessons learned to be learned here, and I know you will enjoy this episode. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, back again with Matt Kelly of Radical Compliance for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds, the podcast where we take a deep dive into a compliance-related topic each week, literally going into the woods, weeds, woods, weeds to fully geek out. That's how much of a geek I am. Uh, Matt, today we are going to take a deep dive into Scott Pruitt from the compliance perspective. You wrote a really interesting piece today, released today, called What Drives Misconduct, the EPA Example. I think in an earlier podcast, you may have opined that uh, uh, the Trump administration uh, will give us uh, ethical leadership lessons uh, basically until our son goes supernova. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, we have a great set of ongoing lessons from uh, Scott Pruitt. So you want to lay the groundwork and then we'll uh, go into some analysis? Yeah, uh, let's see. How do we lay the groundwork of Scott Pruitt's misconduct in less than like six hours? I'll I'll do my best. Um, you know, I think that by now, by today, uh, Monday, April 9th, and now Scott Pruitt's situation is so fluid, we probably have to timestamp what we say about him. But as of today, we had these types of misconduct brewing and circling around Scott Pruitt. Um, we had his profligate travel spending which seems to be totaling in the millions. Um, That is because he has a uh, taste for flying first class at taxpayer expense when he is traveling pretty much anywhere Um, overseas. He had to take a military charter flight from Cincinnati to New York, $36,000. Then he flew first class with his security team from New York to Rome for some sort of uh, environmental minister meeting over in Europe. Um, and because uh, Pruitt has a 20-person round-the-clock security team and they all travel either with him or in advance, all of that spending gets spiked up into the millions. Um, that's not to be confused with his profligate office spending uh, renovations. That includes the $43,000 for the Cone of Silence phone booth he had installed. I'm not clear on whether that 43000 includes other dollars he spent on biometric locks to get into his office. Uh, By the way, if you were a staffer for Scott Pruitt, you are not allowed to take notes or record him when you are meeting with him in the office or probably in the cone of silence if you would make it in there. I'm not sure. Um, We have conflicts of interest with Scott Pruitt. Uh, So in 2017, he spent six months, the first half of 2017, when he was EPA administrator. Uh, living in a Washington townhouse that was co-owned by the wife of a lobbyist for Chenier Energy, which is the largest natural gas company in the United States, which would therefore have a very keen interest in what Scott Pruitt might be doing with environmental regulation. Uh, So Pruitt was paying only $50 per night for this townhouse uh, when he was actually staying there. 
And then, um, needless to say, that is below market rate for a Tony Washington townhouse. Um, but even then, that didn't include at all his daughter, who was also crashing at that uh, the other bedroom in this townhouse uh, while she was an intern at the White House. And my favorite detail about the townhouse scandal is that he was supposed to stay there for six weeks. He ended up refusing to leave. He stayed there for six months until finally the owners actually changed the locks to keep him out of the townhouse. Uh, and then lastly, we're not done yet, um, are the twin sins of Pruitt was demoting or reassigning employees at the EPA who were complaining that the profligate spending was a bad idea and unnecessary. So he demoted them. And then he gave pay raises to two of his uh, henchmen that I think he brought from Oklahoma, where he was former state attorney general. He gave two pay raises to his uh, lieutenants there who he trusted, and he used a bureaucratic quirk in the Safe Drinking Water Act that allowed him to give these raises after the White House specifically told him, don't give these raises to these two people, which he then did anyways. Um we could probably go on for the whole podcast just about Scott Pruitt misconduct through time, but that's just the lay of the land on all of the various types of misconduct he's doing specific examples, but you know, that, that's where we are. So from the compliance perspective, Matt, um, there, this, this podcast is not just political. We do occasionally go into compliance, and uh, but there's actually a fair amount from the compliance perspective. Part of its tone, part of its culture, part of it is... Uh, override of procedures, and part of it is really uh, set with the top of the organization. But I was really interested in the way you wove together the two themes of arrogance and privilege, because that is not something that is unknown to the uh, business world. We've certainly known of uh, very high-flying CEOs. We've known of CEOs uh, just not, not to pick on Jeff Immelt, but, you know, he had a ghost jet that followed him at all times. Mm -hmm. um, Jack Welch, uh, I think, was uh, properly called an imperial CEO. So we have seen uh, some pretty uh, arrogant and or uh, privileged individuals. Why is this case different? Uh, well, I was just looking at all of the specific examples of ethical misconduct that Pruitt seems to have engaged in. And... You know, certainly we could say, okay, so crack down on spending, crack down on conflicts, crack down on this, that, or the other thing. That's not the big lesson compliance officers should be thinking about. Those are specific responses to specific types of misconduct that have already happened. And if they already happened in your organization, sure, crack down on them, but it doesn't get to what drives this, you know, what would drive some executive to commit misconduct in multiple forms? And how can we police against that to prevent the executive from getting to this level in the first place? Because that's what your bosses, everybody listening on this podcast, that's what your bosses are going to want. They're not going to want to clean up the mess after they want to prevent the mess. Um, and that led me to really think about these twin ideas of arrogance and privilege. And it's worth remembering the word privilege descends from Latin. It's privy and legis, which means private law. It is a set of personal standards that apply only to me. They're private. Um, and why do I think they apply to me, but not everybody else? Well, because I'm arrogant. 
the rules that already exist don't apply to me. I get to do what I want because I think my judgment is better. That's the toxic executive brew that leads to all of this misconduct or other types. Uh, you know, I mean, we could, we're picking on Scott Pruitt because it's his turn, but more broadly, compliance officers need to be thinking about how do we find arrogant executives who think that they can impose their own personal privilege that people outside of um, his little orbit don't get to do. And they, and they think that the executive doesn't deserve it. Um, Tom, you and I broached this subject first, actually, last summer with uh, that story I had about Chris Christie when he was uh, on the beach at the state-owned uh, governor's residence at a state park in New Jersey when he closed all other state parks over the 4th of July as part of a budget standoff. But Christie himself, well, I get to go and enjoy the state park that caters to me. It's that sort of privilege, the undeserved privilege, the perception of it that is terribly corrosive. And that's what you want to avoid in a leader. I think that's what all CEOs and boards would say we want to avoid that type of person. And that's the sort of thing compliance officers would want to think about, like, how do we prevent that attitude or the executive with that attitude from infecting the organization? What's what's the right HR policy? What's the right tone at the top? What are the right investigation protocols so everybody could see in advance when this happens, when the executive does this, it's going to get investigated fairly and clearly. You know, what's the forcing mechanism to bring accountability? Those are the sort of issues that we want to think about. Now, Pruitt gives some great specific examples to frame them. We'll find somebody else to talk about in a couple of weeks, but it will be the same sort of issue. And that's that's what I took away from it. Well, there was one other point that uh, I thought was uh, 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 not buried in your article because I obviously saw it, um, which was the need to understand who you're hiring and the cost to a corporation if you hire someone who is both arrogant and believes in privilege, uh, can be extraordinarily higher than um, simply not hiring him. And the uh, classic, um, and the way you, I think you talked about it was that uh, once someone's in the organization, the cost to get them out uh, is going to be some sort of termination fee. And then, of course, there's the reputational damage. Now, mm -hmm. in this administration, this may not be reputational damage. It may actually be a plus in the eyes of the president. But uh, you really brought up a great point about the need to do a very robust executive due diligence when you hire someone. And um, one story that has stuck with me, one of the three magazine articles that uh, uh, I really recall over my uh, professional career, one was about Jerry Sandusky, and it was right after he retired from Penn State, and it was when he went into um, the charity that uh, got in uh, so much trouble. Um, but he was going to be hired as the head coach of the University of Maryland, and literally at the last minute, Maryland pulled the offer. And uh, it just struck me as odd at the time, but he used it as an excuse to go work at that uh, charity uh, where uh, he ended up molesting a lot of uh, young men. But my thought was, what did Maryland know? They obviously knew something. And if we could move it forward a little bit, think about uh, the Dallas Mavericks scandal that you wrote about and we talked about where the uh, Mavericks CEO, uh, Terdima Usuri, um, moved on to Under Armour. And uh, 
I think less than six months later, he was out at Under Armour. Mm -hmm. Um, Clearly, Under Armour had not done an appropriate level of due diligence, uh, whereas the University of Maryland had. And that's why uh, for the not only compliance professional, but for a board of directors and for senior management that are looking to make an executive hire, it is absolutely critical because uh, the arrogance and privilege that Mr. Pruitt has shown uh, did not simply appear when he got to the swamp. Uh, he was a swamp well, alligator you know, I, a long time ago. And uh, I, it, uh, there, there, I'm sure if we looked at uh, his uh, stewardship at the, uh, in, uh, as attorney general at the state of Oklahoma, there would have been clear indicia. I, I think it's important also to realize, you know, executive due diligence against what? That's the key question. And so, you know, you're never going to nail this unless the company does clearly articulate the set of values and conduct that it wants and that it expects. And, um, you know, I think we could probably lead into the other part of my uh, blog post in the next moments here. But, you know, I think that with the Trump administration, those core values aren't clear, or they're certainly not the core values that most people listening would think of as core values for their own organization. But, you know, most core values are going to be, are, are people honest? Or do they treat others decently? Do they work hard? Um, you know, and all of that is, you know, I, I think, frankly, you know, another big core value would be humility. All of that has to be what you are assessing these uh, executives against. And that's the stuff that matters because there are certainly plenty of other people who could repeal environmental regulations just as swiftly as Scott Pruitt. Of that, I am sure. But there are plenty of people with technical expertise to do whatever job you have. But if it's a leadership role as well, you need to have these qualities. And the company needs to know what are the qualities that we want, not just the expertise. What's the personal qualities that we have that we've defined? And if you don't have that, that you wind up with a mess like this. Let me pick up on something that you started with there, Matt, uh, because I don't think this something this is something we've explored very much. You started off by saying the value to uh, the values are either undefined or uh, antithetical to what um, most companies want to have in place. But what if the values are it's that they're undefined? Because if we think about John Kelly for a moment. The values that brought John Kelly into the administration espoused at the time were order, um, stability, and structure. Uh, that's what the president wanted at the time. The president does not want those values now. If uh, current uh, press reports about his relationship with uh, General Kelly are correct, and so we see a change of values that uh, they're so undefined that you really don't know literally from day to day what the values are, and and. Perhaps that's uh, something we should uh, think about as well. Well, I mean, I would say that the simplest guess here is probably the correct one. Is I don't think that Donald Trump ever seriously considered that John Kelly was supposed to bring order and discipline to this White House. He just he didn't like the predecessor, Reince Priebus, and so said, "All right, I'll fire him. This is going to look good for a while." Uh, but I think it was. In hindsight, given all the other personnel changes we've seen and the mercurial, whimsical approach the president takes, I think this was just, you know, uh, Ann Kelly looks good. Always nice to have a military guy around. Let's just make him chief of staff. It'll look good and sell. Um, and for a while it did, but then that facade fell through. Um, the point 
that I think is telling about Donald Trump in Scott Pruitt is I am not sure Scott Pruitt is going to lose his job over all of this, although I think he should. And I think in the private sector, he would have been ousted a while ago. But at a large organization, and you know, I've written about this and talked about this before, a large organization functions well when the senior leaders clearly state what their objectives are and clearly state what their values are and then have trusted lieutenants who have a broad discretion to go and pursue that agenda. Well, in Trump world, the objective is repeal every environmental regulation you can find, especially if the Obama administration adopted it. That's the objective. And the value is loyalty to Trump, which which, uh, Scott Pruitt does give. So in the president's world, in the president's mind, this is all working exactly how it should. Now, to everybody on the outside, this is bizarre. And in a private organization or a publicly traded company of some kind, this wouldn't fly for more than a day or two. But nonetheless, you have to give Donald Trump uh, some points for clearly stating what his values are and what his objectives are. Now, they are antithetical to what I think most Americans would want. And I think what most corporations would expect for a set of core values I know loyalty is among them, but loyalty shouldn't be the only one. There should be at least a couple of others, but not in Trump world. And so in that administration, you see, you know, that means Trump thinks this is fine. And so we saw on uh, two days ago, I think it was Saturday night, Donald Trump said, yes, Scott Pruitt might have spent a bit more money than his predecessors, but he's doing a great job. So we're going to keep him in place. Is that going to last? I don't know. But I'm not surprised Donald Trump said something like that, because in his worldview, Scott Pruitt is behaving exactly like he should. Well, this is one uh, that we're certainly going to have to keep an eye on, Matt, and uh, we're going to have a lot of teachable moments going forward. I think so. Well, Matt, until next week, when we continue the conversation in the weeds, thank you. Thanks, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have any questions on this or episode or other topics, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Matt at nkelly at radicalcompliance.com. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and also, also help get the word out about the only deep dive compliance related podcast. Thank you again for listening to this episode, and I hope you'll join us again next week where we'll explore another compliance topic in the weeds, literally going deep down into a subject. Compliance into the weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.